Welcome to episode 79 of Talking Wild Madness. This episode is brought to you by Adam's Patreon page. That is Adam Morris slash Patreon. No, hang on. It's Patreon slash Adam Morris. Probably should have checked that out beforehand. Anyway, it's brought to you by the Patreon page. If you feel like giving me $1 a week for the for the rest of your life, um, I would appreciate it. And if not, that's cool too. You can still listen for free. Welcome to episode 79. We are inching our way towards 100 episodes. I don't think we're going to make it by the end of the year, but that's okay. That's uh, There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Uh, next, next week on the podcast, we're going to have a guest who goes by the very intriguing name of Uchenna Uma. And I might be mispronouncing that because I've only spoken to her uh, I've only spoken to her th- online, like over in writing. And uh, uh, Uchenna Uma is a anti-suicide advocate. Uh, she's currently, she was going to come on uh, recently, but she had to have neck surgery. Uh, so she's recovering at the moment from neck surgery. She lives in San Antonio. I hope she doesn't mind me saying. And she recently got, I uh, was gave a TED talk, uh, but I don't think it's actually online yet, but it's on its way. So I'm very much looking forward to, to talking uh, to Uchenna and, and seeing what her, uh, what her story is and what, what her, what her life's all about. I think it's, it's very, very easy to uh, forget or, or not be aware that uh, people really are uh, in terrible amounts of pain and terrible amounts of trauma and uh, a hell of a lot of, of depression and anxiety. And I, I think anxiety, I think anxiety in women might be more prevalent than in men. I'm completely, that's that's an intuitive fact. Uh, so that may or may not be true. Um, but I, I, I do know uh, that, you know, life can, life can really put it to you and you know, even, even if you are lucky enough to come from a loving family and you're surrounded by good people and supportive people, uh, you know, it really, it really takes its toll. If you have any kind of feelings whatsoever, if you have any kind of, uh, dare I say intelligence, that was a, that's a, that's a dog making that noise under, under the, uh, under the table at the moment. Um, yeah, if you have any kind of awareness, or, or any kind of feelings, uh, life hurts, man. Life is extraordinarily painful, and even the even a uh, you know even a good life, even even a life that seems to be quite uh, almost enviable to most people, uh, you can't escape it. You just really can't escape it. The only way you can escape it is. To kind of well to go the Buddhist way to avoid the highs and and avoid the lows and and take the middle path, but even then, I mean, I'm almost a hundred percent sure that every uh, every transcendental Buddhist on the planet has has those moments at about two fifty five in the morning before they're about to wake up and pour cold water over themselves. 
in in an active uh, in an active penance and vitality. I'm sure they stare at the ceiling in in, uh, in in whichever monastery in whichever part of the world they happen to be at, or maybe not even a monastery. Maybe their one bedroom apartment in uh, you know in in a downtown area. And they stare at that ceiling and just think, oh, man, what is this all about? Uh, and I think we forget it. I think I think we do a damn good job of pretending otherwise. Uh, and there's always a danger in that pretense. Uh, I always think back to the 1950s and, and how people remember the 1950s of, of the picket fence and the man going to work and the the wife, the, the dutiful wife at home in the floral dress cooking and cleaning all day and everyone's happy and everyone's smiling and everyone's waving to the neighbours and everyone's grass is, is, is cut very well. But of course, at the end of the day when the doors close, all of a sudden humans are interacting with each other and the reality is is very, very, it's a great distance far away from, from the facade of what gets presented. Uh, and I think we're in that situation again you know, 70 years on in 2020, I think that is now, uh, that's, that's been the, that effect, that distance between the facade and the reality of life is I think even greater, uh, as we go around filming ourselves in, in HD and recording podcasts, uh, in our pajamas and, and doing all sorts of things taking photos of our children and our food and our prizes and our awards and our workplaces and our cars and our new things. Uh, and I think the reality is for almost everybody is that once the camera, once the selfie, you know, stick gets, gets put away, uh, you get that feeling, you get that morose, quiet, uh, moment of despair. And I really don't, I used to think that not, that it was only a, a, like a select few people endured that. And the more people that I have come to know over the last, say, three and a half, four years, uh, because I used to be very insular. I didn't, I didn't meet a lot of new people. Um, four years ago, I was still, I was still married and I was, I was kind of cocooned in, in a, very small circle of, of uh, my now ex-wife and my my now still family and and you know small extended family and that was kind of it very very small number of people and I didn't go and ex I didn't go and meet and, and and get to know that many other people or make that many new friends and that's changed dramatically for me over the last three and a half years four years. Uh, I seem to have met hundreds of, of people because in order, you know, once you're, once you have a, once you have something that literally resets the, I don't know if paradigm is the right word, turns your life upside down, something like a marriage breakdown or something like, uh, you know, the death of a, a loved one or heaven forbid the death of a child or anything like that, you know, you, you're left kind of, you're, you're like a, a video game character that's been respawned. And you're in a fresh world and it can be very very frightening that fresh start you don't really know what to make of it so you've got kind of two options you 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 batten down the hatches and you stay indoors and you you grow a beard and you drink a lot of whiskey and and uh, you know you you finger a coil of rope or, or a revolver or whatever whatever you do in your part of the world 
uh, or you get out there and get amongst it and and uh, go on new adventures and meet new people and, and go traveling and start new event new businesses and start throwing yourself into your work and you know doing things that, that you would never you never needed to do before or you'd never thought of doing before because you were content enough not to do it because you were comfortable enough or you didn't have to do extreme or extraordinary things and extraordinary things of course uh, aren't necessarily uh, the, you know quote unquote extraordinary things for for some people getting out of bed on on time and getting dressed is is, is an extraordinary thing and and absolutely should be celebrated like anything else um, I, I, I do sometimes feel that I am taking on large projects like like writing books and having them published and making films and making podcasts and recording albums, I do often catch myself and just think, man, is this, is this, is this necessary? And I am very aware that this program was brought to you by my Patreon page. Um, but you know, even for, even for a working, um, artist, if I can dare use that phrase, there's, there's those moments where you just think, why, 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 why is this necessary? And I love what I do. I, I don't think I'm, I'm not a, um, I'm not like a self-hating writer. I, 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 for the most part, love what I write. I love uh, the the songs uh, that I write. I'm, I couldn't be happier with the the latest album, uh, which is on adammorris.net. If you're looking for some new music, um, you know I love what I do, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of without being prideful, but I am proud of, of what I do. I think I've become a good songwriter over the years. And I think I've become an, you know, an okay, decent writer over the years. But there are, there's those moments where you think, Jesus, do I have to actually do this in order to stave off those, those kind of despairing thoughts? Do I have to, can I not just sit on the porch and drink the Italian wine and smoke a cigar and, and you know, watch the sunset and call it a day. Um, so that might be—I don't know if that's an unreal fantasy to have, or if that's just that's just par for the course. I was chatting with a friend uh, late last night, and this idea of being lucky and unlucky to have some of your dreams come true is is a very real thing because the the uh, the distraction of ambition. Will, can really go a long way to to stave off uh, those thoughts of despair or those those suspicions of meaninglessness. You know, if you're if you're chasing something, uh, that takes up a lot of mental real estate. Uh, I watched a documentary about uh, American football. I don't watch American football. I actually, I don't think I've even sat through one game or one quarter of American football. I don't even know if they have quarters or if they have halves. Uh, but I'm, I'm not a fan of, a, of American football. It looks good on TV when you see it. Uh, but I saw this documentary about a team who won the Super Bowl, and they focused on the coach. And it might be, from memory, it might be a team from New Orleans, and the coach was a tall, skinny guy with a big... Uh, mustache, ginger kind of colored mustache. And he'd been coaching for, you know, decades, 20 years, 30 years. Uh, and he had never won a Super Bowl. 
before. And the Super Bowl, if you don't know, is like the it's the Oscars of American football. That's that's the that's the great prize that, that everybody wants to win. Um and he was being interviewed after he'd won the the Super Bowl with, with this team. And it was recent, it was maybe five or ten years ago. And he said he can't really come to terms with the fact that they've won because being chasing it has been such an enormous part of his life that he had, he came to identify with the chase that he came to identify that as as his personality uh, not not the actual prize itself but the the ambition towards the prize now I don't know if he's won any any uh, any Super Bowls since but there is there is that element that I'm sure he would have experienced the next day or the next week or in, in the preseason before the next uh, before the next competition time came around uh, this element of now what what's next now what do I do uh, now I luckily for me I still have plenty of of, uh, of things that I haven't done that I would like to do so there's plenty of of uh, ambitious distraction for for me in my head um, yeah, to, to, to stave off the, the moments and, and, and times of despair. Uh, but it, yeah, it, it, it is interesting. It is interesting to, com to contemplate the extremes that we go to to stave, yeah, to stave off sometimes overwhelming feelings of meaninglessness and to stave off overwhelming amounts of emotional pain uh and i guess it's a, uh, yeah I, i'd like to i'd like to speak to uh, uchana about that because what little i have read about her and what she's told me is that she was actually in that space herself where she wanted to take her own life and she has uh, obviously turned things around dr dramatically um so it would be interesting to It'd be interesting to talk to her about what it was that put her in that space and what were some of the things that she did to get herself out of that space but then also what are the things she now does to keep herself out of that space because uh, that space is there it's always waiting if you want it anytime you want it anytime you want to bathe in some existential misery uh that void is waiting with open arms for you to make yourself comfortable in uh, and it will it will devour you if you let it if, if you allow it uh, I have a, I have a book uh, that I'm just finishing off which kind of touches on a little bit of that theme uh, that that theme of of what to do in the face of, of absolute meaninglessness and what to do in, in the face of uh, intolerable emotional pain and anguish uh, but anyway that that's that's a year or two, I think, away. Uh, but but I look forward to that. We uh, I have been I've been coerced, requested, uh, uh, press ganged into doing a fundraiser with two local authors. There's a, a hospice fundraiser, and a hospice is obviously that's where people go to uh, basically die over the, over the last couple of weeks or a month of their life if they're suffering from a, from a very, very, uh, well, 
from a terrible illness. So there's a hospice here in Albany in, in Western Australia. Uh, and it's, it's probably, I, I actually, I did a story on the hospice for a magazine about two years ago. Uh, and it's quite a beautiful uh, uh, place, even though its function is is very intense. But it is quite a beautiful space, and it, it's it has been filled with artworks and installations from uh, artists all around the southwest. But it is, for the most part, it runs on on fundraising, so it does. I'm not going to ask anybody for money, by the way for the hospice fundraiser because I, I wouldn't even know I wouldn't even know where people are supposed to send the money but as far as I know there's only one hospice in Albany so if you do feel inclined uh, google Albany hospice and we're doing a a fundraising lunch where myself Diane Wolfer and John Doust who are who are the other two authors we're going to read from our our books while a room of a hundred people eat soup. And then um, now I'm not sure of the details, John Doust, who is, he, he's been on the podcast before. Uh, he's quite a jovial, eccentric man who likes socializing and likes to be in the contact of other human beings, bless his heart. And he, his plan is we'll read on, on stage and then we'll go, table to table and people at the table will ask questions about the books this to me is a terrifying idea and the prospect of having to impose myself on on half a dozen different tables for an hour and talk about uh, my my book is maybe the least appealing idea that i've ever heard in my life i think i would rather try and memorize hamlet than than do this but because it's for a good cause and because John Doust is, is who he is, I can't really say no to John. John's a very lovely man. So uh, that's what I'm signed up for. And I, he, he he is a Miles Franklin uh, long lister. And the Miles Franklin Award is, is like the Australian Man Booker Prize, I suppose. Uh, and he he's just, his latest novel is called Return Ticket. He, he just brought it out. Which is very good. A recommended reading if you like uh, coming of age, family stories, travel with a little bit of travel thrown in, with a, a little bit of drug use and a little bit of sex, just just to keep the pages turning. Um, and yeah, he's a, he's a gorgeous gorgeous soul. I haven't really met Diane Wolfer, and I'm not sure what her her latest book is, but I'll, I'll get to meet her. Uh, John's organised a meeting for us to have before the uh, the hospice gig, so. Uh, I'm sure it'll all, I'm sure it'll all go very well. Uh, nerves, nerves aside, and being awkward at the imposition on on all the different tables. The book of Leviticus came up in conversation. Uh, now I am not going to pretend I am a expert on the Bible or the Torah or the Old Testament, or certainly the book of Leviticus. But the, what's interesting about the book of Leviticus is it has as far as i know it has a passage of genealogy which basically uh which basically tells you where uh the lineage from adam and eve all the way to 
the you know Moses. This is from memory, so it gives you there's, there's like a few pages of Leviticus that is just and Josiah begat uh, Esther and Esther begat. Uh, Chronothea and Chronothea begat, and it goes on and on and on and on down the generations. And for the people who believe that the earth is 6,000 years old, this is apparently where they get the information because they take all the names and they add up the generations, and that's how they came to the to the magic 6,000 number, apparently. Uh, and I, I, it reminded me of a story I heard about missionaries who went to Papua New Guinea uh, like in the 1940s and they were Christian missionaries and they had to translate the the New Testament the Gospels the story of Jesus they had to translate the these these Gospels into the Papua New Guinean language and if Papua New Guinea is what I think it is I'd imagine there'd be a few different tribal languages throughout Papua New Guinea again that is an in intuitive fact so don't take that to the bank and because it was obviously very time consuming and probably quite expensive and quite hard to do to translate uh, the King James Bible into whatever dialect they speak in Papua New Guinea they didn't do the whole Bible they only did certain sections of the Bible so they chose a few a few of the Gospels they probably chose uh, I don't know I don't know I won't even guess. They probably chose Corinthians. They probably chose the book of Job if they had any sense. And hopefully they chose the book of Ecclesiastes. But what they didn't do was they didn't, they chose to omit Leviticus from this new translation, this Papua New Guinean translation. And the idea behind not doing that was because obviously there's no message of, of, uh, of, of, of being saved by the by uh, Jesus Christ, uh, it's just a list of names. It's basically a, uh, the, the the biblical phone book equivalent. So they they left it out. But then what they found once they took the trans the gospel translations to Papua New Guinea, they found that the uh, the Papua New Guineans. I hope that's the correct term. The Papua New Guineans found it very difficult to accept the gospel. They, they found it very, very odd because they weren't able to trace back the family history of where this prophet came from. So they needed that genealogy map that went all the way back to the, to the Garden of Eden, so to speak. They needed that in order to take uh, Jesus seriously. They needed to know where did this fellow come from. So the uh, the missionaries that was their that was their next job was to go and uh, was to go and translate the, the the begatting book that is Leviticus. the The extension of the Lawnmower Chronicles continues, by the way, here in uh, in the beautiful Lower King. Now I'm I'm I've been left with a kind of a, a conundrum. I bought a ride on lawnmower about six years ago, maybe five years ago. I'm not sure, and I constantly and consistently left it out in the elements. And every single time my father would come to visit, he would notice that my ride on lawnmower was 
out in the elements, that it would be getting rained on, that it would be getting blinded by the sun, uh, that it would be getting, uh, you know, whipped by sand in in uh, with a bit of wind that was about before before the uh, before the, the the paving was done around the house. And he would say to me, Adam, you're you're a fool. You need to get that a little more undercover. You need to get that. You need to you need to you need to uh, protect that lawnmower from the elements. And me, of course, being you know. Me, me being the person I am, I said, yes, absolutely, of course. Yes, you're absolutely correct. You're right. And then I would neglect to to uh, to hide it from the elements. Now, I did once actually buy a lawnmower cover. And I felt I felt kind of good. That was a very mature purchase. I think it was about $45 uh, from, it might have been from Kmart or it might have been from Target or it might have been from, uh, it might have been from one of the automotive stores that I never ever go into, and I I put this beautiful cover on on this beautiful new lawnmower, and then it was a very windy night one day, and then the the, the cover blew off the uh, the lawnmower. Now, cut to six years later, my lawnmower stopped stopped working. My lawnmower no longer works, and I am surrounded by. A couple of acres of grass here and it's been raining like uh like the book of genesis for the last couple of months it is it it's a very moist place right now and the grass is out of control so my dilemma now is do i bring the lawnmower well i have three options i can humbly very humbly go and ask my dad to fix the lawnmower for me I think that might not be the right thing to do at this at this juncture. I think I might pay for that in quite a degree of um, emotional uh, self-reflective turmoil if I go down that path. The second option is to take the lawnmower to the lawnmower repair store. And now it's probably going to cost me, I don't know, again, this is an intuitive fact, but I think it's going to cost me about $700 to fix this lawnmower. Now the lawnmower itself cost $2,200 six years ago. So we are, you know, it's a third of the price. So I'm also thinking maybe I just need to buy a new lawnmower and I can look after it this time. I can do it right this time. I can be the responsible person. I can be the better man this time. It's kind of like entering into a into a second marriage after the first one didn't, didn't work out for everyone involved. Um, you know, this time I'm going to do it right. So that's the, that's another option. And then another option is to get a, a gardener to employ a man who has a lawnmower that he looks after, who's skilled in the art of efficient lawn mowing. And I was trying to work it out. I think if I got, if I got a, if I got a man out to do it, it might cost like a hundred bucks or 150 bucks. And if I got him out once a month, and I wouldn't have to get them out once every month because in the summer when the sun's out and there's no water, there's the grass doesn't grow. So maybe I could get them out seven, eight times a year. And that might cost me, well, $700 or $800 or $1,200 for the year. But it would mean I wouldn't have to go out and be on the lawnmower myself because it takes me three hours to cut this grass. 
And it means I wouldn't have to worry about maintaining the lawnmower. And it means you'd be throwing a bit of money into the local economy, which is always a good thing. The bounce rate of, of, of the dollar is, uh, is, is very important. The bounce rate, the bounce rate is very, very interesting. Apparently, the economy, not just the economy now or not just the local economy, but how economies work, it's a group game. It's not an individual game. And apparently, the groups who have the most success, and I'm talking about cultural groups here. Uh, I heard this from a man called Dr. Claude Anderson, who is a American, well, he's an American economist. He seems like an extraordinarily intelligent man to me when I listen to him. Uh, and he was talking about, he, he's an African-American man, and he was yeah, there's a there's a video on YouTube where he's talking to. It looks like he's in a black church, and the church has got maybe fifteen hundred, two thousand people in there listening to his to his talk. And the talk is phenomenal. The talk is brilliant, and he is talking uh, about the bounce rate. And of course, in America, in Australia, it's, it's difficult to talk about the bounce rate because there's so few of us here, and our our groups that we have here in Australia are not as tribally aligned. So, yeah, so it's, it's hard to talk from an Australian perspective. But from the American perspective, he was talking about the, uh, say, the, the Indian, the like the Asian Indians who emigrated to America do extraordinarily well in the hierarchy of, of the American economy because... When one dollar comes into the American community, it bounces around the India. Oh, sorry, the, when one dollar comes into the Indian community in America, it bounces around the Indian community about eighteen times before it leaves. So, an Indian man or woman will go to an Indian barber to get his hair cut. The Indian barber will take that same dollar and then he'll go to an Indian mechanic to get his, his car fixed. The Indian mechanic will take that and he'll take it to the Indian grocer to get his, uh, to get his lentils and, uh, and, and, and coconut cream. The grocer will take uh, that dollar and, and, and buy a pair of shoes from an Indian-owned shoe store, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the Indians will spend that dollar 18 times in their community before it'll be spent in anyone else's community. And as you go further and further down the pecking order of, of the groups who have, say, financial success within that system, the lower the bounce rate of the of the dollar. So I think from memory, it was Indians uh, and then Chinese Americans and then uh, Jewish Americans. I think the Irish Americans were 10th and then it just went down and down and down. Uh, and the bounce rate got lower and lower and lower. And the, the bounce rate in the African-American community would only bounce once. And it got, it's just the reason we're talking about uh, racial group economics uh, I was just thinking of things that so many things are invisible that are very, very important. So like the idea of an intuitive fact, obviously you need to check it. Obviously you need to, uh, obviously you need to find out if it is true, but that there is an inner voice. There is that, uh, there is that niggling voice inside of you that either suggests things that are true or suggests situations that you should maybe not be a part of or, or get yourself out of. 
and if you don't follow, I mean, if you don't follow, if you try and play, say, a game like economics as an individual, and it is a group game, if you're trying to play it as an individual, I mean, it's it's similar to it's similar to trying to play a basketball team, but you're playing as a, as you're playing one on one basketball, and the other team is playing uh, team basketball. It's just never ever gonna it's never gonna work. And there are so many things that are that are invisible, and <laughs> that are so that are so very much uh, are, are very important. And it it uh, it's yeah, just something maybe worth considering. 